Well, good morning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and blessings from uh, the Reality Stockton family. It's, a, it's a, a joy to be down here and to serve you guys. Your church has served us immensely over the last uh, 11, 12 years and so it's always just a privilege to come and open up God's word with you guys today. Uh, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be uh, continuing in this series in the book of Ruth that you guys have been in for the last uh, few weeks, and I'm going to conclude Ruth 1 this morning. Title of this morning's message is Love Ain't Easy. There it is. Ain't that the truth? Ruth, chapter 1, I will be reading from the ESV. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Melon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Those took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Milan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to, your, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And he said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone, again, gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God's return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Lord, uh, in our first time of singing, we sang, we just want to be where you are. Your word tells us in the book of Revelation that Jesus walks among the church. Where can you be found, God? You are with us right now. Your presence is with us in a very distinct, special way as your people have gathered. You're enthroned upon the praises of your people. Your spirit at work in our midst. The body of Christ coming together, being built up one stone upon another stone into a holy temple for the spirit of God. Lord, we thank you that you are in our midst. Lord, thank you that you're ministering to us, God. Thank you that you're here. And Lord, we thank you that you've spoken to us. Thank you that you've spoken to us through your word. We can know you through your word. And thank you, Lord, that you've spoken to us through your final word, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray, Lord, that Christ, his life, his death, his ministry, the good news of his resurrection and, and the hope of his return, Lord, I pray that the gospel of Jesus would minister to us, God, and challenge us today. Lord, in areas that we may be convicted, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you not only bring conviction, but strength. Where we are reluctant, Lord, would you bring a, an enthusiasm and a hope, Lord? You know where we are right now. You know where we're coming from. You know all the baggage we brought into the, to the room today, God. Thank you that you're able to sort through all of it. We ask that your transforming presence meet us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... I've learned over the last decade of pastoral ministry that when officiating a wedding, it's really important to discuss the details of the ceremony ahead of time. These are kind of some of the overlooked elements. You go through the premarital counseling, you're working through all that stuff, and then it's just like, oh yeah, we gotta, we gotta think through the, the ceremony. And really specifically, what's important about planning uh, for the ceremony is, is the, the vows. The vows of commitment are key. The vows of commitment are what a couple is committing to for the rest of their life, till death do they part. And so over the last few years, it's become increasingly popular for couples to sort of craft their own personal vows. Which if I could be honest with you, uh, I'm always a little bit leery when people craft their own personal vows because as optimistic and as well-meaning as they can be, Personal vows have a tendency to be a little bit dishonest. And uh, that's not a good way to begin a marriage. So I've been standing, officiating a wedding, literally in the moment when a bride and a groom make these vows to one another. I will never hurt you and I will always cherish you. <laughs> so I'm standing there thinking to myself, I'm looking at the crowd, I'm like, am I gonna tell them? Are you gonna tell them? Who's gonna break it to them right now? <laughs> Why? Because we know that it will be less than 24 hours before they are not cherishing one another and before they hurt one another. 
Now, there are some great go-to verses to pair with the wedding vows, the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. 1 Corinthians 13, the characteristics of love, love is patient, love is kind. And also this passage in Ruth that we're covering today, verse 16 through 17, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, for your people shall be my people, and your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. But it's interesting, as much as Ruth is a love story, and Ruth really is a love story. I mean, if you just kind of skip along and you look at the little chapter headings, you get, a, you get the gist of it. Ruth meets Boaz, chapter two, okay. Chapter three, Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. Okay, that sounds sort of salty there. <laughs> Boaz redeems Ruth. Bo, Ruth and Boaz marry. So you, you, get, you get the gist. It's a love story. But this is really interesting to me. That as much as Ruth is a love story, this famous marriage passage is not originally a statement between two lovers. These aren't originally wedding vows. This is an oath of commitment between Ruth and Naomi to journey through life together. This is very key. Before Ruth is a story of romantic love, Ruth is a story of committed love. A kind of love that no matter where you are in the relational spectrum, whether you're married or dating, you're engaged, or you've just given up on relationships, it's the kind of love that you and I can experience and should experience today within the community of God's people. Now, in the early years, uh, before my brother and I were born, my dad, my old man, was a Motown R&B DJ that went by the name Sweet Papa. Yep. (laughs) And so when it came time to raise my brother and I, he raised us right. Stevie Wonder, Jackson 5, Aretha Franklin, Isaac Hayes, Marvin Gaye, and so on. And I remember this song uh, when I was a child uh, from Minnie Ripperton, Loving You. Anyone remember this one? Loving you is easy because you're beautiful. Making love to you. Well, we'll just stop it right there. We're in church with you. But think about that first line. Um, Loving you is easy because you're beautiful. But let's be honest. Love isn't easy. Real love isn't easy. We, We romanticize love in a way where we think the pinnacle of love is reaching this point where love no longer hurts, it's, it's easy, that if you love someone enough, it, it makes that love easy. But the Bible knows nothing of this kind of love. The Bible knows nothing of an effortless, carefree kind of love. If we were to be honest, we know very little about the, 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 the kind of self-sacrificial, costly, stubborn, loyal love that the scriptures speak of. I would go as far to say this, that if love for you is easy, there's a really good chance that you're doing it wrong. If love is easy, then it's probably self-love more than love for another. We must remember that the path of love led the very Son of God himself to agonize to the point of sweating drops of blood and begging the Father, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass before me, let it be. 
A love that drove him all the way to death on a cross. Now, does Jesus love us? Absolutely, infinitely more than we could ever imagine. But did that make it easy love? Absolutely not. Love itself, at its core, at its essence, isn't effortless. Love, at its essence, at its core, is not romantic. When the Bible paints the picture of love for us, it is not drawn in the shape of a heart. It's drawn in the shape of a cross. And it's this sort of cross-shaped love that I want us to consider this morning together. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through Ruth 1. I know you guys have covered it already. But what we're going to do is we're going to walk through Ruth 1 under these three headings. Leaving home, loyal love, and life together. Let's look first at leaving home. Now, the author of Ruth begins the story by explaining of this family's initial journey. And we're told that this journey takes place in the time of the judges. And being set in the time of the judges really sets the stage for how decision-making was happening at this time. Listen to the very last verse, uh, a very last line of the very last verse in the book of Judges that precedes Ruth. It goes like this. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How do you summarize, how do you conclude the darkest book in Scripture? Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It wasn't about what is most faithful to God. It wasn't about what is most faithful to God's covenant community. It was, does this sound familiar? What's best for me? What's best for me? This, just like the 21st century, was the ruling idea. This was the ruling agenda of the time. The time of the judges. We're also told that, this, uh, that there is this family that leaves Bethlehem in Judah, which is the place where God's people were, the place where God had provided for blessing for his people as he took them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and he brings them into the promised land. This was a place of promise, but they leave Judah to go and wander in the land of Moab because a famine has hit the land. Now, leaving Judah to go and sojourn in Moab has some extremely significant biblical meaning attached to it. This family has decidedly moved away from the place that God has promised to bless his people to find refuge amongst other people. And it's very interesting that they leave Bethlehem because Bethlehem means house of bread. They leave the house of bread to find sustenance elsewhere. To add to it, they go to Moab of all places. Now, what, what's the big deal about the Moabites? Well, the Moabites were the descendants of an individual called Moab. Now, Bo covered this a little bit in, in weeks past, but just by way of reminder, uh, Moab was the son born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. Fearful about the, the future lineage of this family, these daughters, specifically the oldest daughter, gets the father drunk, sleeps with him, and she conceives Moab. And so in a strange series of events, now centuries later, here is this family, once again, to take matters into their own hands as well. 
Most commentators would agree this is, this is representing a lapse of faith and this is representing a lapse of commitment. They are fleeing God's people and therefore they are fleeing from the presence of God. There is a certain degree in which turning your back on God's people is turning your back on God. Now, I came across a list of words that describe feelings and emotions and experiences that we probably, that we experience often, but we probably didn't know that there was a word for that. So we're gonna go through those one at a time. The first is this, sonder. The realization that every passerby has a life as vivid and complex as your own. You ever had that moment where you're on the freeway, perhaps, or you're in a large crowd, and you realize, oh my gosh, like, all of this isn't just about me. People are just living their own lives. They have their own fears, and their own dreams, and their own families, and their own aches, and their own pains. They're just as complex as me. There's a word for that. How about the second word? Opia. The ambiguous intensity of looking someone in the eye, which can feel simultaneously invasive and vulnerable. You ever had that individual that stares into your soul and you just feel so invaded inside? Like, whoa, 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 do you know anything about personal space? There are those individuals that are able to just look so intently in our eyes where you, it feels as if they're looking into the deepest portions of our soul. There's a word for that. Third, rubitosis, the unsettling awareness of your own heartbeat. Now, this has nothing to do with the message, but I thought that was pretty amazing that there's a word for this. You ever just been like, wow, that's cr- this thing keeps beating. Uh, how about this fourth word? Any takers on pronouncing that one? Merberturicit, or something like that. The inexplicable urge to push people away, even close friends who you really like. There's a word for that too. And frankly, that's a word that sounds way too obscure for an experience that is so common to us. I've never dated, ever. I married my high school girlfriend. But from what I know about dating is that there's this thing that can happen when a relationship goes in a certain direction, people will ghost one another. Perhaps you've been ghosted, perhaps you ghosted someone, shame on you. The idea is that if things get hard, if things get weird, if things get boring, if things are just not moving in the direction that you want this relationship to go, you end the relationship with someone by suddenly, suddenly and without explanation, just withdrawing from all communication. While I have been spared from this experience in dating, as a member of the body of Christ, I have not been spared of this experience within the church. This happens all the time amongst God's people. See, we too have the inexplicable urge to run when things get difficult, to flee the covenant community, the very place that God has provided for our good, the very home, the very house of bread that God has provided for our our growth in order to find an easier, happier, freer experience elsewhere. When things get tough, if we're going to be honest, when things get awkward, when things get vulnerable, when things get dry, we split. Now, it's important to note something here in Ruth. What's the result of them leaving? What we find is that this family only discovers 
more brokenness elsewhere. That's the deception beneath fleeing and splitting. That we will have, there's brokenness and hurt here, so I will go and find a place free from brokenness. But guess what? You bring your own brokenness with you. And as much as you try to flee the world, the one person really that you should be running from, can't, you can't flee. It's you. You bring you with you. You bring all your hurts with you. You bring all your baggage with you. We thought the problem was out there. What we discover is really the problem is within us. And if even if we were to find a perfect corner of the earth, we would break it with our own presence. The family discovers more brokenness elsewhere. Look with me in verse five. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So first Elimelech, then Milan and Killian, and within 10 years, death is torn through this family. Life happens, okay? People die, relationships end. And it's here in Moab, Amongst the Moabites, life has happened, and now she's alone. And to add to it, she's bitter. Naomi leaves Bethlehem, pleasant, that's what Naomi means, and she returns bitter. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara. And so we, we step back and we see the grand sweep here of Ruth 1. What we see is that fleeing from community, the community that God has provided for us only brings more brokenness and more bitterness in the long run. This was Naomi's experience. This is how she's been shaped. This is how she's been shaped by her culture. This is how she's been shaped by her time. This is how she's been shaped by her family to interact with God and to interact with other people. It's based on what is best for you. You go where you please, no matter what in what way it affects other people. This explains why, why so easily she tries to white fang her daughters-in-law. She, she tries to push them away. She says, shoot, go. Go back to your people. Go back to your family. You don't want me. I'm dead weight. No, 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 trust me. Just, just move on with your life. She assumes that this is just how it works. She assumes that this is how relationship is supposed to function. When things get tough, People leave. So what's she going to do? She's going to beat them to the punch and push them away. How often we do that? Out of fear of some sort of future relational pain, we will push people away to try to avoid it. Leave. Go back to your own people. But despite her experience and and really despite her misconception about how commitment and, and love really works, God's grace extends to her. It meets her in the fields of Moab. She is knee deep in her hurt and loss and bitterness. And that grace extends to her and it begins to soften her heart. But it's interesting. How does God's transforming grace come to her? It's through Ruth. Look with me in verse 14. And they lifted up their voices and they wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. She says goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So catch this, Ruth's love is God's response to Naomi's brokenness and bitterness. Naomi has need. God provides through Ruth. So the question for us is how does God provide care and nurture and healing and grace to his people? Listen, through one another, through his people. 
How do we experience the embrace of God? I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I just want to know God's presence. I just want to be in God's presence. I want to feel his embrace. I want to know his touch. How do we feel God's embrace? Listen, through one another. And Ruth clings to Naomi as we embrace one another. How are we reshaped despite our broken past? How are we reshaped despite all of our fear of commitment and all of our crazy ideas of what it means to be in committed relationship? It's within the community of God's people. This is where we learn to love. And this is where we learn to be loved and to receive love. We see leaving home and then God drawing Naomi back. Secondly, the second movement in this passage is we see a loyal love. Loyal love. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. The kind of love that we read of here is a loyal love. This is a stubborn love. In fact, I would go as far as to say this is a defiant love. Think about that tone. Stop urging me to leave you. Stop it. I defy your attempt to push me away. I refuse to allow you to to throw this relationship away. I don't care what it costs me. I'm hanging on. And what we're witnessing as we're reading this passage is we're witnessing a battle here. Ruth's love is going head to head with Naomi's resistance. And it's back and forth. Naomi says, leave. And Ruth says, no. Naomi says, no, like, really, no. And Ruth's like, yeah, really, no, really, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm not leaving. The question is, who will win? As this battle unfolds in chapter one, who is going to win? Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Stubborn love can overcome the strongest resistance. Resistance puts up a fight Love prevails. Love prevails. And what we see here is that Ruth is willing to change her entire outlook on her life. She's willing to change where she lives. She's willing to change her identity, her community, her religious ties, future family, future spouse, all of it. And she knows what she's giving up. In verse 9, Naomi prays a blessing, speaks a blessing over her. She says this in verse nine, the Lord grant that you may find rest. The words here for rest means a place of settled security. Naomi is saying, go back right now and live your best life. Where we're going right now, this is not your best life. There is something better for you amongst your own people, amongst your own tribe. Stay there, live that life. And Ruth says, I don't want the best the world can give me. I'm giving up the the best the world can give me in order to follow you. I've had multiple neighbors who have moved away from tragedy. At one time, we lived next to a family that had been displaced during Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and they had moved to Stockton. Countless families displaced through natural, a natural disaster like this. I have a current neighbor who was displaced from his home country of Mozambique during its civil war. And when he was a small child, he witnessed his own grandfather being murdered 
People are, are typically, uh, immigration typically functions like this. You move away from tragedy or hurt or sort of a grim outlook and move towards a brighter future. This is very common. It's very common in our world. This is essentially our, our nation. Families that came here for a hope of something better. But unlike most stories of immigration, Ruth, and we need to pay attention to this, Ruth is moving in the opposite direction. She is going completely against the grain. She's going in the direction of more difficulty. She's moving towards more sacrifice. She's moving towards more risk. Why? Why would she abandon what she has in Moab to step further into sacrifice, to step further into risk, to step further into difficulty? And the answer is because this is what love does. This is biblical love. Biblical love alters one's life for the sake of another. Biblical love is not easy. It's challenging. And out of this love, she makes a commitment because guess what? That's what love does too. It commits. And she says this, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also anything, if anything but death parts me from you. So Ruth says, I'm leaving it all behind to incur difficulty, sacrifice, challenge, potentially death, to move with you to Bethlehem. Now, does any of this sound strangely familiar? Because if it does, we need to be reminded that the story of Ruth points us to the greatest story that the world has ever known. Of one who would leave the safety of his home, a place of settled security. One who came to earth and immigrated into poverty in Bethlehem. One who would intentionally enter into vulnerability and intentionally enter into loss and even death for the sake of another. What Ruth points us to is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel announces that Jesus Christ, the very son of God, came to identify with us. Jesus came to share in our struggles and our suffering. And Jesus came to die in our place. Despite all of our sinful rebellion, despite that urge to push God and his people away, Jesus pursued us. Despite our resistance, Jesus clung to us. Jesus was the word that met us when we were in the fields of Moab saying, come home. The Lord has visited his people. Like Ruth, Jesus said, let death come upon me so life could come upon us. Despite all of our broken vows, Despite all of our broken promises to God and others, Jesus made a vow to us. Jesus stands in faithfulness and it's his devotion to us that supports our devotion to him and our devotion to one another. As I said earlier, and it bears repeating, when the Bible paints the picture of love, it's drawn not in the shape of a heart, it's drawn in the shape of a cross. And it's this cross that casts its shadow over Ruth. And it's this cross-shaped love that we, we need to grasp here because if you're like me, you're challenged to love in this sort of way. It's, 
It costs immensely to love in the way that the Bible calls us to love. And if you look within, you say, I don't, I don't know if I have that kind of love. So if you're like me and you feel that you lack this sort of love, you're challenged to love like this, the reminder for us today is to look to the cross, to see the proof of God's love, to see the greatest act and display of love that the universe has ever known. And it's this kind of love that God has extended to us in Christ to be received by faith. It's this kind of love that we can experience as we respond in faith to Jesus Christ. And it's now this kind of love that God has empowered us by the Holy Spirit to extend to one another. We're not the dead end, the cul-de-sac of God's love. We're the conduit of God's love. This beautiful cross-centered, cross-shaped love coming to us and flowing through us. Amen? It's a kind of sacrificial love that sacrifices our own selfish desires for the sake of others. It's the kind of love that is unwilling to simply do what is just right in our own eyes. It's the kind of love that refuses to give up and run when things get difficult. It's the kind of love that defies resistance. It's the kind of love that acknowledges, you know what, people are hard to love, but guess what? So are we. And we are infinitely more difficult to love on an eternal scale than the person sitting to our right or to our left. Think about the cost of God's love for us, his own son, Jesus Christ. Have you loved to the point of shedding blood? We see leaving home. We see a loyal love. But lastly, we see this call to live life together. Ruth and Naomi sojourn together. Your people, my people, your God, my God, I'm in this with you. This is an apt description of the Christian life. Life together, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so it's this life together that I want to consider in, in conclusion. And I want to look at this under three sort of subheadings. The first of which is this. Life together brings necessary vulnerability. To engage in the kind of life together that God has called us to engage in, in the community of believers, brings about vulnerability. Now, we live in an increasingly digital, hyper-connected world. And in this world, the temptation to avoid vulnerable, real-life, in-person relationships is going to increase as well. The internet has made it very, very easy for us to satisfy some of our shallow, basic social needs as people. And yet at the same time, it has made it very, very difficult for us to relate in real life in intimate ways and specifically in committed ways. We can have a million friends online and yet no one know us. Why? Because there's always a digital barrier. Never have we been more, more connected. Never have we been more disconnected. Never has it been easier to avoid the vulnerability that commitment requires. And yet at the same time, never has it been more important for the church to revive its dedication to real life. Life on life relationships the kind that are awkward, the kind that are weird, 
the kind that you wouldn't necessarily choose for yourself, the kind that are uncomfortable, the kind that make us extremely vulnerable. Listen to how the Apostle Paul approaches relationships as he writes to the church, the first century church, the Thessalonians. He said, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul's saying. I didn't just come to preach the gospel. I came to share my life with you. The word here for life in the original language means soul or breath. What Paul is saying is we were pleased to bear our souls and to entrust our very life breath into your hands. The question we need to consider today, is this the kind of vulnerability that we're experiencing in our churches? Is this the kind of vulnerability that you're experiencing, Reality Carpentry? Is this the kind of vulnerability that we're experiencing in Stockton? Now let's take a moment and not kid ourselves. This is a huge risk. To love like the Bible calls us to love is absolutely risky. Because for many of us, we have bared our souls. We have entrusted our, our hearts into the hands of other people. And in unfortunate situations, people have hurt us. The sort of backdrop of this conversation is the reality of church hurt. Now, while this is absolutely outside of the scope of my message this morning, and we're not going to be able to work through every element and dy dynamic of, of, of church hurt, it's important to acknowledge that for some of us, and maybe even a number of us today, this seems nearly impossible because you have been in that place. You responded in obedience to entrust your life into the care of someone else, and it came back to bite you. You were hurt, you were betrayed, you were rejected, you were used. And again, while I'm not going to be able to, to we, we, none of us can actually work through that alone what I want to mention is this, that the Bible doesn't promise us a risk-free vulnerability. It doesn't promise us a risk-free vulnerability. There are no promises that Ruth won't be hurt. In fact, if I'm reading this right, she sort of anticipates it. Where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, I will be buried. She's like, if we're going down, we're going down together, sister. I'm in it to the end with you. There is no promise that Ruth will not be hurt and there is no promise for you and I that we won't be hurt either. This is the crucible of love, to be vulnerable. We don't learn to love and be loved anywhere else other than in vulnerability. Listen to the words of, of C.S. Lewis. He said, there's no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart Will, will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that ca casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it's going to change. It won't be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least 
to the risk of tragedy is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. To love is to be vulnerable. Secondly, life together sees the story that is bigger than ourselves. Now, if you were to pick up the book of Ruth and you, maybe, maybe this is the first time you actually are exposed to the story of Ruth. And you weren't to read on, you were just to stop here at chapter one. What you would think is, why is this book titled the book of Ruth? It should be titled the book of Naomi. Because so far, she sort of is the main character. But what we see as we read on, and specifically toward the end, is that God is at work in the life of Naomi through her hardships, through her challenges, through her loss, to now bring about something in the life in and through Ruth. At work in in Naomi's challenges and her difficulties to bring something about in and through Ruth. This story is for anyone who initially thought that their own story was all about them. And who is now ready to discover that God is doing something bigger. Bigger than the plot line that centers around me. Listen to the words of G.K. Chesterton. He said, how much larger your life would be if yourself could be smaller in it. Break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always played and you would find yourself under a freer sky. So the weather was sort of bad yesterday. Uh, but Michelle and I, my wife, we walked to the beach. We just sat on a little bench. And, and it struck me, you, you guys have a huge blessing and privilege to live at the ocean. And one of the reasons for that is the reminder, the perhaps daily reminder of just standing in, in front of this just vastness and being reminded of how small we are. That's what awe, that's what wonder does. It, it infuses us with a sense of bigness, but also it reminds us of how small we are. See, when we think of small, we think of insignificant or overlooked or not loved, not so. But we need that daily reminder that we find when we do life together within the community of God that uh, though we are loved, we're also very small. In fact, the Bible would describe our lives like a little mist, like a little vapor that is here today and it's gone tomorrow. If you lived your life thus far thinking it's all about you, Ruth is calling you into a much bigger, brighter world. Into a world where everything that you've experienced and everything that you're going to experience is serving a greater purpose than you could ever imagine. Where you are loved, where you are cherished, where your role within the kingdom of God is meaningful, but you're not center stage. And it's not all about you. And that's good news. The final point is this. Life together speaks to an onlooking world. Francis Schaeffer once said, our relationship with one another is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. 
year after year, century after century, the church is constantly trying to reinvent itself and trying to find meaningful, relevant ways to reaching one's neighbor with the love of Jesus Christ. And while there have been helpful advancements in reaching the globe, this stands as the timeless apologetic. This stands as the means through which God displays to the world that he loves the world and he's at work transforming it. You ready? It's our love for one another. God displayed his love through the cross. How does he continue to display that cross-shaped love through us? Look at me, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. They stroll into town in a level of loyal love and commitment. And the narrator tells us that the whole town is stirred. Everyone looks. What is this? What is going on? Is this Naomi? So in closing, here's my prayer for you, Reality Carpenteria. It's that the coastlands would be stirred at the sight of the loyal love that God is bringing about in you. As Bethlehem was stirred by the love that appeared between Naomi and Ruth, may the coastlands be stirred by the love that God brings about in and through you. Do you receive it? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it challenges us, Lord. But also, God, we want to acknowledge right now how this touches on some very sensitive places for maybe many of us that have been vulnerable in the past, who bared their souls, and it was taken advantage of. It was used. They were abused, betrayed, rejected, whatever the case may be. We want to acknowledge right now, Lord, you see those things. You see those hurts. And God, we want to believe in faith. You are here right now ministering healing. It's not my job or the job of anyone here to heal. It's yours, God. By Christ's stripes, we're healed. And so, Lord, we want to ask that by ministry of the Holy Spirit, you would begin to administer relational healing in our midst, Lord. Where there's fear, would you overcome it with faith? Where there's resistance, would you overcome it with the love of Christ? Where there's apprehension, Lord, would you overcome it with enthusiasm? Where there's doubt, And trepidation, Lord, would you overcome it with hope? We acknowledge, Lord, that this church, like every other church, is messy. And as as well-meaning as we may be in our commitments to one another, we will not cherish one another. We will hurt one another. But we thank you, Lord, that what's holding this thing together is not our vows to one another but it's your vow to us. 
Help us to see our call to cling to Christ and to cling to one another in light of your covenant cling to us, God. That you are faithful to the end with us. That you do not give up. You don't run away. You hold tight. Christ will hold me fast. I pray, Lord, that that love would begin to melt us right now. Melt us for the love that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.